Welcome to the Behind the Racket Pod, the podcast taking you behind the racket with today's top tennis players and biggest issues facing the sport. Behind the Racket is a community to give fans and players in the world of tennis the opportunity to open up like they have never done before. Visit BehindTheRacket.com for the latest stories, merch, as well as direct links to all of the latest podcasts. It can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, Pandora, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. Download the episodes and make sure to leave a review. And we want you to be a part of the conversation. Find me at NoahRubin33 or Mike at MikeCTennis on all forms of social media. You can also learn more at BehindTheRacket.com or MikeCTennis.com. Special thanks to my sponsor, New Balance. Visit their latest shoes and styles at NewBalance.com and learn more about their program of giving back at hashtag NBGivesBack. You can also help support the podcast by visiting Patreon.com slash BehindTheRacketPod and receive rewards from our travels around the world. And now... Well, our guest this week, a guy who has worked with Jim Courier, Sebastian Grosjean, so many incredible talents, Kevin Anderson recently, and now the coach of Tommy Paul, also a member of the Player Council as the coach representative, Brad Stein joins us. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. I'm down in Delray. Um, you know, what came down, I've been here for about eight, nine days, nine or 10 days. And uh, we've been practicing every day except for Sundays, taking Sundays off. Been, uh, been really putting a big focus. I talked to Tommy before, we, before I came out here. We had spent um, a couple of weeks ago, we spent a week in, out in California. Riley and uh, Taylor Fritz came up and those guys uh, got a place up in the Hollywood Hills. And we practiced on some private courts in Beverly Hills, which was, which was great. Good practice. Um, Paul Anacone came out, you know, Marty Fish came out a little bit and stuff. So that, that was great practice out there. And then I went home for about a week and then came out here. And I told Tommy that uh, the time that we were out here, I really wanted to commit to a lot of um, set play because obviously guys just haven't been playing sets and um, try and get, try and get into a rhythm of playing sets and finishing sets and, and just a little bit different, you know, than obviously just training and hitting balls and practicing and, and doing that kind of thing. So it's been great, you know, and there's there's a nice uh, group of guys down here practice with. We practiced with Francis one day and we practiced with Riley and um, a couple of guys at some of the academies here that are training that are ranked a little bit lower, but good good practice situations. Obviously a very difficult time uh, with the pandemic, but for me it's been – actually really nice to practice without anxiety, you know, for the first time ever in a long time. And I, and you know, that might be weird for a coach to hear, but the pressures when you're injured to try to come back and get fully prepared while other guys are moving up the rankings or whatnot. How has this changed for you without a deadline in sight, without a real tournament in sight? How do you change your perspective right now? Yeah, it's been, it's been, you know, at the beginning, obviously we're, we're what, two and a half months, three months in, we kind of have a, we have a a goal line a little bit now with the reestablishment of some, some schedule and stuff like that for the guys, Tommy's going to be in DC and he's going to be in Cincy and he's going to be in the open. So, you know, as long as those tournaments continue to remain on the schedule and, and everything, then, you know, that's what we're, we're planning for at this point. But, you know, to go back early on, I mean, 
Tommy, uh, it's not a secret that going into that UTR event, which is one of the early events that was played, you know, up in West Palm Beach, that Tommy and Riley had both put on a few uh, LBs <laughs> um, going out for some late night runs. I finally saw a picture of this supposed that they called it a milkshake. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you call this thing a milkshake because it had Oreo cookies on it. Right. And it had like, you know, like about six inches thick of whipped cream on the top it had to be like minimum it had to be like three to four thousand calories like <laughs> and they were and they were supposedly going and getting one of these like every single night at like midnight you know like so so yeah tommy had put on a few lbs going into that event we talked about that i mean he was i think he was a little embarrassed actually at um you know some of the commentating and, and stuff that went on during that event but it, it lit a fire under him, actually, you know, and, and to be honest with you, since that time, he's been putting in really good time at the gym, um, more of a focus on the gym time than on the court time, but but getting court time as well. Um, he is lucky because he has a good situation here. Obviously, he, he's, he and Riley live together. So and Riley's working with Jay Berger, who has known Tommy since he was very young. And so those guys were practicing together quite a bit. Um, and, you know, Jay talked to me and, and, you know, we talked about some areas that Tommy could focus on during this time and everything. And um, but as things have gotten a little bit more, you know, we had a little bit more direction about what's going on and stuff. You know, he's he's ramped up and honestly, he's uh, he's back to his playing weight and looking very fit right now and uh, and feeling very good, moving well on the court. I think playing sets all this week has been really good. We've actually been playing a minimum of two sets. Um every day that that we practiced i told him i wanted to play sets every single day as if it was um a tournament situation where you were going deep in an event on a consistent basis you know and i think to be honest he's really enjoyed that because um you know you know him well enough no if he tommy sometimes <laughs> can lose a little bit of focus here and there but um but he likes competing you know he really likes competing so so making the practices revolve a little bit more around competition is is good for him so it's it's been fun it's been good I know he gives you a lot of credit um, for kind of refocusing him um, late last year and just kind of getting him to that next level. Um, you talked to me, I think it was in Cary, North Carolina, about how you wanted to reinforce for Tommy the idea of making sure that everything was still fun. Why was that so important to uh, your relationship with Tommy Paul? Yeah, well, I think that, I think that, and I'm going to correct you, Mike, because I, I actually remember it was it was in um, it was in Tiburon, mm, okay. and uh, you you came out to watch him warm up for a court. And I remember my exact words. I said to you, "I'm really making an effort not to beat the fun out of him," mm. <laughs> because because I feel like I feel like you know Tommy spent quite a bit of time at the USTA. It was very very structured there, and um, he I, I think they did beat the fun out of him. At, at different points, you know, where it, they, they just didn't let the game be as much fun. And, and um, I've said forever within my coaching, you know, that I don't know a single player. I've never been around a player yet that doesn't perform better when they're happy and they're enjoying themselves. And for Tommy, that means having some fun. He, he needs to have some fun. And so if in the course of practice, you know, he hits a few balls between his legs or behind his back or, you know, gets a little goofy here and there or whatever and stuff like that's fine. That's Tommy. And the other thing about Tommy that I think, you know, that you have to realize, and I think this is important as a coach for me coming from a coaching aspect, 
you know, is recognizing your athlete and, and what makes them tick and what works best for them. And, um, you know, Tommy, Tommy's what I call a gamer. You know, when it's, when it's game time, Tommy turns it on. He can be a little bit loosey-goosey even in his preparation. Like he would, you know, coaches that are extremely, extremely, extremely structured, um, probably me 20 years ago, hmm. would go nuts um, trying to deal with some of the things that he does and everything, you know. But, but um, when he gets out on the court and it's time to get the matches going, I mean, he's a, he's a little bit of a street fighter, you know, from that standpoint. He's just ready to go. And, uh, and he loves the competition. And so I, I don't want to take any of that away from him by trying to, to make it so serious all the time, you know, in practice. We're trying to accomplish our goals and get the work done that we want to get done, um, but, but definitely allow him to be who he is. Yeah, I mean, when I when I see Tommy playing Tommy tennis, you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what's going to come <laughs> at you. He's going to run down 50 balls, and you think he's just kind of smoothing it around the court, and then there's a foreign pass to you, and you're like, wait, where did that just come from? So, you know, you kind of touched on it at the end, but how long does it really take for that coach-player relationship to get to a point where you feel like you know who they are as people? Because, um, like you were talking about happiness and everything, but how long does it take to actually get to know – kind of what triggers them, what, what gets them in that game ready position. Um, give us a timeline. Yeah, that's, it, it's not easy, Noah. Cause, cause you know, like I've known Tommy now, I, I went to the USTA and was working at the USTA since uh, in 2014. And Tommy was 14 or 15 at that time. And um, you know, living in the dorms at the USTA. So I saw Tommy almost on a daily basis when we were both, you know, in Boca at that time um, and was around him. And I spent time with him and Riley, you know, and I got to know those guys pretty well early on from that standpoint. Um, so that, that gives me a big advantage with him, but like I've also over the course of my career in coaching, there's been a few times where I've started with guys that I didn't really know, you know, I coached Sebastian Grosjean, for example, and when his agent contacted me originally, Sebastian was a very established player, married, had two kids, and I flew out here actually to to this area also and did our first on-court training session. I didn't really know Sebastian particularly well, and I would say that that scenario probably took me a good five to six months before I was completely, completely like comfortable with both his game and recognizing the things that he did on a, on a regular basis, things that helped him win things that like, you know, would hurt him if he was doing them too much or something like that. And then also his personality and his personality type, you know, it's the same in college coaching. You know, you guys know, not everybody necessarily knows, but I've coached, I coached college tennis for a while too. And I always remember it's a good story. I had a guy that played first match he ever played for me. German guy came in in January. He's playing a little bit lower in our lineup, but he was a good player. We're playing a match. I can't remember who we were playing exactly, but he was the last match on to win or lose the match. Hmm. And, and it was tight in the third set. And I went out and I had a hat on, flipped my hat around backwards, and I got like nose to nose <laughs> with the guy and was basically like calling him out and calling him like a wimp and, you know, like, like you need to man up, buddy, and like all this other stuff. And got to remember, I'm like 27, 28 at the time, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, and so he goes out and immediately just absolutely folds in the match and like doesn't win another game for the rest of the match. And afterwards, you know, we're having a little team meeting. I let everybody go. I pulled him aside and I said, Hey, Olaf was just trying to get you fired up for the match. Obviously not a good system. I won't <laughs> use that again. You know, like 
So it, it, it does take a while. You got to figure out the guys that you work with. And I think that's part of being a good coach is not necessarily always trying to make them fit into what, you know, how you are, you gotta, you gotta see them. And it also depends on their age and where they are in their career and what's going on with them. I mean, I'd love to get a hold of Noah, by the way, Mike. (laughs) Yeah. You and me both. (laughs) (laughs) By the scruff of the neck. You have to get a line for that one. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we care about your players. Believe me, I love Tommy. It's great. But we have you on the show because we like you. I want to hear more (laughs) about you. And I don't think, you know, we went into the players and the uncertainty of everything going on. And uh, obviously, I'm close with Mike, sadly, as that is. And, you know, from a commentary point of view, you know, we don't know where that lies. So how has this been for you personally, not knowing the ins and outs of what a pandemic looks like, where you go from there, what your next stop is. What is that like for you? You mean this is your first pandemic, no? <laughs> he went through this the swine flu when he was like six. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is my third pandemic. This is just my first worldwide <laughs> pandemic. You know, like I'm older, so I was here for SARS and all that other stuff. Yeah. You know? No, I'm just joking because those were not even close to what we're experiencing right now. Um, you know, it's funny, like it, it I've, I've gone through some phases. I'm really, I'm really lucky and really happy that I'm, you know, you said to talk about me, but, but being with Tommy for me, um, Tommy's been extremely generous and has continued to pay me through the, uh, through the, the pandemic, uh, the previous, some of the previous people that I worked with, you know, would not have probably done that in some ways and stuff. So, so that's made things easier. I've also, for me personally, because what I do for a living is very volatile um, you work with 20 something year old guys and if they get irritated or frustrated or pissed off at you for whatever reason, they might, you know, want to make a change. So I always tend to keep uh, a fair amount of liquid assets available <laughs> to take care of myself if I get fired from my job. Um, so, you know, when all this happened, I was like, you know, I, I'm okay personally, like I'm, I'm fine. It's not a big deal. Um, I'm also, I'm also someone, you know, Mike and I've talked about this. I'm, I'm divorced and I've, I've been on my own for a while now and stuff, you know, and I've, I've, uh, over time, I've come to the, to the realization that, that, um, I spend a fair amount of time alone, but I very rarely feel lonely. Hmm. So I started to a few of my friends that I, I, I think I'm actually built for pandemics. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like the pandemic's been good for me. I, I, I have a nice place in California that I live in and, and I've gotten really into uh, cycling again. So I used to cycle a fair amount and then I kind of like got away from it and got my old road bike out and got it all fixed up. And I've been doing a bunch of cycling and just getting out. And I've also been lucky because I have a kid in, in Fresno where I live. That's uh, that's actually very highly ranked, um, 16 and under player in the country. He's ranked one, two or three in the country. Hmm. And um, so we had a private court there. We're hitting three days, four days a week, which, which helped a lot with sanity, you know, just getting out and doing some exercise and working out. And then I, I have, you know, quite a bit of gym equipment at my place and stuff. And so all that stuff, I feel like I've been very lucky. Um, have you been able to keep in contact out. with your children as well? I mean, I- interacting with yeah, your my children? kids. Well, my kids all live in Fresno. Okay. So that's one of the reasons I still live in Fresno. It's, probably, it's the main reason I still live in Fresno. <laughs> um, I mean, I like Fresno. That's not to say I, I, I actually really, really enjoy Fresno. But yeah, all three of my kids live very close by. So I spend a fair amount of time with them on a regular basis. 
working with Tommy is, uh, I, I, I say that I've worked with Tommy in some ways, and I'm sure Noah feels the same, uh, <laughs> in, you know, interacting and being with him uh, in, in various ways over the last several years. Uh, it's, it's always very interesting just because he's, he's, he's needed to mature. Um, we're recording this Sunday night. Um, the latest that has come out was that Sasha Zverev is the latest who's just irresponsibly, Im you know, immature, maybe just out partying. Um, and, and it just kind of gets me into this, this mode, this idea of we've got a lot of 23, 25-year-old people here um, who are maybe not necessarily... Uh, capable of handling the responsibility within a pandemic. And I'm not saying that that, that Tommy is one of those people. I'm just kind of, that's kind of how my brain's working here. But how do, how do we rationalize what we're seeing from Sasha Zverev, what, what happened in the tour with, with Novak as well? And how do we, uh, in terms of tennis, ex expect 25-year-olds to act responsibly when we go into this bubble for the U.S. Open, Brad? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a good question, Mike. It's a really good question. I saw the I saw the stuff on Sasha today. Obviously, saw the stuff you know from from the Adria tour with Novak, and um, you know, there's a. It goes back to what we were saying earlier. I think there's there was almost a sense of them trying to prove something that oh, you know, everything's better here, you know, and and we can get away with doing whatever we want to do, and and uh, was obviously very miscalculated on their part. Um, I don't. I would assume, I would hope, obviously, that none of the guys that have contracted the virus um, players have any long-term effects. But the whole point, as we all know, is that you're trying to isolate and stay away from getting the virus so that you don't infect other people who then infect other people who then infect other people because that's how it gets spread. And ultimately, we'll never know if somebody from the from that event, from the Adria tour, a spectator or somebody else ended up causing someone's death, mm -hmm. potentially. And and I mean, if one person ended up, you know, in ICU or actually died because they came in contact with someone who contracted the virus while they were at that event. I mean, that's a pretty horrendously bad thing. So when you carry that over to the events that are coming up, I think that. You know, the, what I've seen so far in the protocols that are going to be held in place um, have been much more on point for what people need to be doing to try and stay safe. Um, I mean, I think that the USTA and in looking at running the U.S. Open, uh, the organizers in D.C., the organizers of this event in, in Atlanta, which is obviously interesting because they're looking at potentially having some spectators. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that they're trying to do that all in the safest possible way. Whereas, you know, with the event in Belgrade, I mean, nobody was doing anything that had anything right. to do with safety uh, <laughs> or taking any, there was no protocols whatsoever other than, Hey, let's go show everybody that we can go play tennis and have a great time. And, and, and dance, with stuff, you know? dance with our shirts yes. off. Dance with our shirts off. Don't forget that. Shirts off playing, you know, <laughs> so, so hopefully, hopefully, you know, it, my biggest concern at this point um with the resumption of tennis, you know, actual tournament tennis, which I'm excited for, is that um, we continue to see this this buildup that's going on in the U.S. right now, and potentially it gets to the point where hope New York hasn't been bad at all. New York's been one of the best states in the country now um, since they've gotten everything under control. I'm sure Noah has a lot to do with that. It has to be his <laughs> his responsibility for sure. Um, so but, a lot of unwarranted backlash here, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, yeah, so, so, you know, I mean, I think that 
we need to we need to actually show in these events. And I think that the smaller events that have been going on, you know, the women's event that was played this weekend in Charleston, um, you know, a lot of these smaller events There's a small event going on in Miami. I think it starts tomorrow for a couple of days before yeah. the Atlanta event, the, the couple of UTR events that were held in West Palm Beach. Um, as far as I know, I haven't heard of anyone from any of those events that's tested positive. So that that those things say to me and suggest to me that we can keep expanding that a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger if we do it in a in a conscientious and safe manner and and hopefully you know get things going again at at all levels of the game despite novak fanatics thinking i do want the world and tennis to burn down to the ground <laughs> regardless i've dedicated my life to the sport um do you think it's worth it. Is it worth the risk of getting fans and pushing that agenda right now? I think that, I think that the timing for the Atlanta event is actually quite good Hmm. because to be honest with you, I was talking to a number of my friends, other coaches, other people involved in the game. And, and I was saying that once we had those other events, which, you know, they've been having, I mean, matches have been going on what, like daily in Saddlebrook. And, and then, you know, these other small events, there was one out in L.A. There's been a couple other ones. There was one up, in, I think, in Santa Barbara or Ohio or something they did out in, in California. And then all these other ones, I think that the next phase was to actually do what the girls did this weekend, was to play on a bigger stadium instead of somebody's private court someplace or something like that, was to play on a bigger stadium, you know, and, and present a little bit more of a professional image where, you know, potentially music on the changeovers and those kind of things. And then I think the next step is what they're doing in Atlanta to have a, a, a small amount of fans that are going to be socially distanced. I mean, if, if, you know, if you and your girlfriend go Noah and you guys are sharing space together all the time anyway, then you guys can sit together. But if you're coming, I with, won't you be know, attending this Atlanta <laughs> event. Yeah, I, I know you no won't. Way. Don't worry. <laughs> There's just no way. I'm just saying, <laughs> yes. if you happen to be there. So people yes. that are coming from the same household could sit right. together. They sit together. Otherwise, let's spread everybody out and keep 20 seats in between them, but at least have a few spectators so that it starts to create a little bit more of an atmosphere. Um, I, I don't think anyone's considering the possibility of saying, oh, we're going to fill the stands. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Obviously, that would be way too quick. And I think that we all, we all in this whole process have to continue to recognize that things are changing so quickly on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis that we don't know where we're going to be in a week from now. We don't, it could be 10 times worse, could be 10 times better, could be two times better, who knows? You know, so, I mean, literally we're making plans based on what we think is going to be the best situation. And I think that's smart to do. And then we adjust as we go forward. So I think the people that are involved with running these events are pretty smart. And, and they, they're trying to do a, a, the best possible the job. And I also think that it's very important for our sport to try and get back and, and be playing. So I'm very, I've been hopeful for a long time. Um, Mark Lucero, who you know, probably mm-hmm. Noah, I, I think Mike knows, you know, he asked me probably a month and a half ago if I thought the Open was going to happen. And I said, I'm still extremely hopeful that the Open is going to happen. And he said, well, you're the only person I've talked to that said that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just based on, you know, meetings that I'd been in, conversations that I'd had, listening to people, um, different things. You know, the, the big thing that occurred for me, which I think really pushed it up, and, and then was that when, um, you know, they said that 
they were going to allow exemptions for travel for international athletes. Right. I remember that. Yeah. And tennis was on that list. As soon as that came out, I was like, okay, the open just went from being 40, 60 to being like 80, 20, in my opinion, because you're all of a sudden being able to get there. And, and governor Cuomo in New York was saying, you know, we want to try and get sports back. We want sports to start coming back. So, and I think tennis, you know, on the list of sports that are, that are the, the safest under the pandemic conditions, Tennis and golf are two of the the ones that are up there the most, you know, other than obviously cornhole and uh, and water polo. Uh, so here's you. We that was supposed even... to be funny, you guys. <laughs> I gave it. I gave you a chuckle. <laughs> um, we you we haven't even mentioned here. You you are the coach representative on the the ATP Player Council. Um, I am, and so I, I know you've been. In, uh, you you told me when we were talking about it in Melbourne that you're you know it's. You're not really hands-on necessarily um, as the coach's representative, but I'm sure you've been engaged in a lot of these discussions, at least been listening to a lot of these discussions. Um, I I guess this is a twofold question, Brad. Um, Number one, how are players going to be protected if they feel unsafe um, attending or traveling to the U.S. Open in, in terms of finances and points? Um, if you can give us any insight in that. And also number two, um, h- how are we making sure that uh, there are enough opportunities for players at the challenger and futures level um, so that they are protected too? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that the second one especially is a, is a big issue. But I, I think as you guys talked about it in one of your last couple uh, episodes, you know, there has been there has been some some progress in that area. You know, August seventeenth is supposed to be the date for not just the opening of the tour, but also challengers and I think even ITF events. I think ITF events are going to be the toughest. Um, I think there will be challengers. They haven't come out like they haven't presented to us on the council an actual schedule yet of challengers, so we don't know how many challengers there will be exactly. But um, you know, they're they're. There is, there is definitely within the conversations that we have, there is a consideration and a thoughtfulness and a focus on making sure that they're trying. When I say they, the ATP, the the board and the governing body and the members of the ATP that are involved in these aspects of what's going on, there is a, a serious consideration to try and be as fair as possible to everybody throughout the different ranking levels. Um, that being said, you know, there is a there is a prioritization of the top levels of the game. Those are the most those are the, the, the parts that really, you know, push the sport and, and market the sport the most. But I think the fact that they've created this opportunity for a schedule for challengers to coincide or to compensate for not having qualities at the open, which um, ideally, listen, I would have loved to have seen qualities. I, yeah. I mean, I think that 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 would have been the ideal situation. Same. And there was a there was an option that was considered of not holding Cincinnati, and then right. having qualifying. The USDA expressed that they did not have the ability um, to be able to do everything. They couldn't do Cincinnati and do qualifying and everything in the exact same way. And, and the compromise they ended up deciding on through you know conversations with the ATP board and everybody else was actually to hold Cincinnati. Um, I think personally. This is just my personal opinion. I would have been in favor of not holding Cincinnati in lieu of holding qualifying. 
because I would have liked to have seen the open be as normal as it could possibly be for a slam. Um, but they, you know, they decided to go the other direction. But I think the options that they've that they've created in in having challenger events in lieu of the qualifying for guys. Also, guys are getting an, an automatic um, financial payout. The guys that were gonna that are you know would have been in qualifying. Um, it's a pretty nice package, I think, overall, uh, because guys that are in Europe, there's going to be challengers. I think I, I believe those that week challenger or challengers um, in Europe, and there's going to also be challengers in North America. So guys from Europe won't necessarily have to come here to be playing challengers, just like you you wouldn't normally. There's always a few challengers going on around. So um, I think all in all, it's a pretty good package. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, but yeah, but if like uh, the reason I, I brought up the 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 idea of the people who don't want to come, John Millman, Nick Kyrgios specifically, have been very vocal um, yeah. about about not coming. Are are yeah. they protected in any way, shape, or form, or is there even even discussion of protecting players who don't feel safe coming for I haven't, the U.S. Or I the haven't French? heard I haven't heard any discussion of that situation at this point. Hmm. Um, Within the systems that they're talking about in relationship to the rankings, how they're going to do the rankings for the rest of this year, yeah. and when the rankings will go back to normal, there are considerations of looking at those kind of things to try and create a scenario where points would drop off in a slower basis. So, okay. for example, if you didn't play this year's Open or you didn't play Cincinnati, say that those guys from Australia just don't want to come to the U.S. at all. So they don't play any of the events that are here, and they played D.C., Cincinnati, and the U.S. Open last year. They would maintain their points from 2019 okay. for those events until those events came back around in 2021. Okay, That's one of the options. I'm not saying that's going to happen 100%. Yeah. But that is one of the options that is being examined to try and create as fair a possibility for exactly the scenario that you're talking about where – it's not that guys can't come here. It's that they're making the decision that on their own that, like, I'm not comfortable and I do not want to travel and I do not want to put myself in that environment given COVID-19 everywhere in the world. And so they're trying their best to create a scenario that compensates for that. Um, and I think that's something that everybody needs to realize is that in, in my experience in being on the council so far, I feel that the guys are um, – they're they're much more thoughtful than I think they get credit for, for for so having Novak being a effing a is is not accurate. Yeah, I'm not talking about <laughs> Novak. I'm talking about the guys. That, I'm actually I'm actually talking about the guys at the ATP that work for the ATP. Okay. Um, you know the the players the players that are player representatives on the council um, who are supposed to represent a certain demographic within the tour. Mm. Um, sometimes I think forget about those demographics that they're supposed to be paying attention to and are a little bit more concerned about themselves or they look at it more in their own perspective yeah. than, they, than they do sometimes from the other guys' perspectives. Um, some of them do a better job at that than others, but, but I, you know, I, that's just the way it is. I, you know, after all this time and what we've gone through, is it not too global of a sport? I mean, logistically speaking, you know, we're talking about all of these issues. Is it not too global of a sport to evolve? Um, I mean, I, I know that that's a, that's a point that you like to make on a regular basis, Noah, you know, that, yes. that given the number of governing bodies that we have and everything else and stuff like that, you know, but I think that, um, 
I think that the there there are, you know, I heard like for example, Mike talked a couple of weeks ago on your guys' podcast. I do actually listen to your podcast just because I want to educate myself so that so that, that you know when I tear it, when I tear it down, I actually have a background. For it. Um, well, I like educational, <laughs> you know. It's, it's, <laughs> um, you know, but talking about like regional play or creating an option, you know, for having like a, a North American tour and a, and a South American tour and a European mm-hmm. tour, you know, which I think in a lot of ways is a great idea, but it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And one of the things that I think is great about our sport and one of the things that has been highlighted in seeing these smaller events is that the greatness of our sport comes from bringing together the greatest players in the world to compete against each other. So, when you create that kind of scenario, like you're talking about, you do exactly the opposite. You limit the access of the very best players to compete against each other. And, and I'm not just talking about the guys in the top five or the top 10, because I'm never like that in my head, you know, like it's about the guys in the top hundred, the ties in the top 150, the guys in the top 200, you know, you bring all those guys together on a regular basis as much as you possibly can. And, and, that's what creates drama. That's what creates excitement. That's what creates entertainment value for our sport. And to me, that's one of the things that these smaller events has highlighted. It's great that there's tennis out there and that we're getting some tennis on TV and it's live tennis, quote unquote. But there just isn't the sense of drama. There isn't the sense of, of intensity knowing what they're playing for. You know, the traditions of our sport, the slams, the bigger events, I mean, and I was I was watching, you know, the girls from Charleston the other day and uh, which is shocking because I don't really watch women's tennis that much saying that publicly. But um, <laughs> but I, I was I was enjoying watching the girls, you know, from from there and stuff. And I, and I was just thinking to myself, you know, I'm watching Madison play Kennan, mm-hmm. which actually was a third round match. I think last year at the U.S. Open, someone informed me of that because I made this comment and I said, I said, you know, if this was a third round match at the Open and you were watching it on TV, even without spectators, there would be a sense of something that you were playing for. And that's going to create drama. And that's going to create excitement in watching that. I was watching the golf today. I mean, there's no one there. Man, the golf was phenomenal today. Great stuff, man. It was really entertaining watching it, you know, because to me, there's, there's no better reality TV than live sports. And when you've got something like the U.S. Open that you're actually playing for, like a title in Cincinnati that you're actually playing for, then I think it just creates that much more drama. You know, I mean, I don't want to speak for Mike, um, but for me, the geographic, the specific geographic locations would take the place of 500s and below. They would still be the slams. You still have the thousands. I just don't know if people care about the tournaments below. I don't think they make enough money. And I think we can build something whether it's new events, team events, specific geographical locations, you get the points and then you can go play. But that's where our sport, you know, it's only those eight, 10 events a year where you get that thrill from again, you know, well, yeah, but I, I disagree with, you Noah. I disagree okay. with you and I'll tell you why. Yes. I think that your view is a very American view. I think it's okay. a very North American view because I think that tennis in Europe is not like that at all. And part of that's part of that's just our scenario. Look, tennis was not like that in America back in the 90s because Mm -hmm. we had five guys in the top 10 and we had American guys that were winning slams. So American tennis was kind of like crazy, you know, TV attention, everything like that was crazy. Unfortunately, we haven't had that for a while. And there was a shift in the scheduling of the tour to some degree that moved more to South America and Europe. But 
Tennis is the second biggest, second most popular sport in the world behind soccer in every area of the world except North America. And you have to remember that sometimes when you think about how's their perspective over there. Because people over there, they follow the sport a lot more than they just follow the players. Here, American spectators, I feel like I've always felt like this, they follow more the stars of the game. So when you don't have stars in the game, they tend to not pay quite as much attention. And so the big events here are the ones that draw in the stars of the game. And, and that, I, I would agree with you, Noah, that that scenario is something that we need to try and change. We should be creating more stars. We should be trying to find a way to create more stars within our game rather than the game being pushed just by a very limited number of guys that, you know, if you don't have so-and-so in your tournament or this guy or that guy, you know, you're, you just don't have as many spectators, but, but we're just North American spectators are just not as big a tennis fans. You know, you, you know, you've played enough in Europe to see like, you know, people have a greater appreciation, a greater sense of the game over there. You you go to play tournaments here in the U S and half the time you could play the best point of your life and it's like crickets. That's on. Nobody yeah. says a freaking thing. In Europe, you know, Ivo Karlovic hits 30 aces, and every ace he hits, people are applauding and going crazy because they're like, wow, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, I haven't played enough ATP events, and as, as Mike likes to remind me, I suck at tennis, and that's why. But um, I know. disagree with that also. I think you're a damn good tennis player. I appreciate You're a little that. bit of a pain in the ass yes. sometimes, but you're a damn yes. good tennis player. I mean, uh, you, don't, you don't have to preface that, but, you know, I've played, <laughs> you know, played Geneva and here I am with Baghdadis first round and then Fognini second round. And I have 50 play, you know, 50 people watching or 100 people watching. I just don't feel like we've gotten to that next step yet or we're not grabbing the full attention. And that's been my worry is that the sport doesn't have the pedestal. Um, but you could tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, again, I, I've... Oops. Again, I think that's a North American view, and I think that's an experience of playing here in North America. But, you know, like um, I can give you a bunch of different examples, but but for the one of the best ones in my mind right now is like the Vienna event. If you go and play Vienna, it's a 500. It's not a small tournament. You know, it's a a 500. They're sold out every night of the week. They're not sold out just on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They're sold out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And even during the day and the day matches, like late in the afternoon, that place is packed. It's absolutely packed. I remember sitting there. Kevin won it in 2018 when I was coaching Kevin. And I remember sitting in like, I think it was round of 16 or quarters and turning to his physio and saying, and saying, you know, that they have this sold out stadium and the people are going nuts after every single point. There's music blaring on the changeovers. It's like going to an NBA game. And I said, I turned to the guy and I said, I said, if you're a little Austrian kid here watching this, how could you not want to be a tennis player? Yeah. Like, it's just astounding. And then you come and you go to Delray Beach and you show up on Tuesday night and there's, you know, 700 people in the stands and they applaud, you know, only if you hit a tweener and then (laughs) hit a smash from the back fence for a winner or if somebody throws their racket over the stands in the back. You know, that's just North America, unfortunately. So... So go ahead, Mike. That yeah, part irritates me, by the way. I get frustrated with that. I, I know you do, Brad. So so mine uh I, I don't have necessarily that same idea, uh and Noah and I have talked about this, but for me that the idea of the regional 
championships was more for this year because of the yeah. situation, right? And so I, I, I guess that's, uh, you know, going back to the pandemic side of it here, that's been, that's been my concern and frustration is that I, I haven't necessarily seen this idea of adaptation uh, of that type of different thinking, um, which is not necessarily, uh, you know, I, again, I'm not involved in those discussions. I, I know that the organizers of tournaments that are, you know, in play, U.S. Open, USTA, are, are doing their very, very best right now to adapt while still having their their tournament. But just that idea yeah. of completely changing and looking at how to change and radically for so, six months or so. So you're asking that you're saying that you don't see that from the standpoint of the ATP. Just the, yeah, just that because, idea of how, how they're adapting and maybe to to make it safer for everyone and and keeping yeah. things. I, I, I would, I would, because I would argue that there has been a lot of adaptation within tennis right now. I mean, we've had all these small events. Um, right, but there was no just points, a, though. There's just a whole circuit, a whole circuit that was announced that's going to happen in Australia through UTR. Right. They're going to have what six events in a row. Right. That they're that they're holding in Australia now. I don't know what they're doing in Asia. If there's any events going on in Asia, there is been, right now in Japan. In fact, that, but, I mean, yeah, look, right now you have the Battle of the Brits that are happening. Um, you have this event that just happened in Charleston with the girls. You had those UTR events before. But to those go to your point, adaptation, to go to your uh, point, you're from the, not from the ATP, just just and the idea of the, having points, because that's what you talked yes, about. That idea problem, of making the, the drama. The problem was the problem was and the problem is for the ATP that in this brief amount of time, I mean, we've only been out, you know, it seems like forever, but we've really only been out for three months that how do you create a system within that time frame that awards points on a fair basis if you have an event with four players or six players or eight players being played in one place and another one with four players or six players of a completely different ranking level in another place. I mean, the, trying to come up with a system that would create some kind of unity within that scenario. So in the end, the ATP, I think, has taken – a more long-term vision mm -hmm. that the tour was going to come back. And, and in reality, if we're sitting here right now talking about that, they were right. The tour is coming back. So rather than completely change everything that's ever been done, basically there was a hiatus. And, and that hiatus was filled by these other smaller events. Um, I mean, if we look at other sports, you know, the NBA or I mean, it's different, obviously, for for team sports to some degree. You could argue that. But there hasn't been any other sports that I'm aware of. I could be wrong. There hasn't been any other sports that's actually done any of the adaptations to play events mm. that tennis has done. Tennis was playing a month and a half ago, two months ago. You know, like there, there wasn't really any other sports that were playing. It's just that the ATP wasn't in a position to sanction any of those events. How are they going to sanction an event that's being sponsored by UTR in West Palm Beach with four players? <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, and, so, and so I think really, in honesty, they took a long-term vision of, you know, we're going to have tennis back at some point. I think there's a lot of information that I'm sitting on the council in meetings. I think there's a lot of information that's being passed back and forth that we're unaware of. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that we're – uh, awfully naive if we don't think that, you know, Andrea Gaudenzi and Massimo and other guys within the ATP, Ross Hutchings and the other guys on the board 
are on phone calls on a daily basis to tournament organizers, to other people trying to figure out what they can do. I mean, these, we're, we have a call tomorrow and we're talking about ranking system. Mm. We have like a few different options they're looking at. I mean, they've had mathematicians like looking over algorithms to try and figure out like that stuff's way the hell <laughs> over my head. So, I mean, you know, they present the options and I'm just sitting there going like, well, I like that one or I like that one. But to get that started from the very beginning of it, how you were going to create that and put that together. And that's not easy. That yeah. stuff's not easy. And so it takes time. And, and I think that um, that all in all, if we get back and D.C. happens and Cincinnati happens and the U.S. Open happens and then we have a short clay court season and the French Open happens, I mean, man, that's going to be unbelievably lucky given this scenario for our sport. So Brad, for me, for me, there's a lot of positives looking forward from this situation. Brad, uh, I uh, certainly understand why you're a good commentator. Uh, probably the best at because uh, I can talk forever, Mike. <laughs> 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 just we just gotta just get you your own podcast and and then you're all set. Uh, just do me one favor as we we wrap up here, Brad. Um, so a, as you know, uh, having listened to our last couple podcasts here, um, Noah's gotten in some trouble uh, with a guy that you know on the on the player council. Uh, it's it's gotten a little heated. Uh, some of the some of the fans, this. some of the fans uh, of of Novak have have taking some shots at uh, at Noah just uh, you know put in a good word for for my little my little buddy uh the next player council meeting would you my, my little buddy <laughs> and after you do that send your home gym equipment to the mo having you know muscle Noah, I, wearing mycation i have a i have a potential money making event for you though Noah you know oh. maybe uh maybe a pay-per-view boxing match Wrestling match. I mean, what what are you better? Are you better at grappling or are you better at boxing? Uh, probably boxing. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, I mean, you don't have a lot of reach. No, quick though. Quick. <laughs> quick. Though. That's true. Very that quick. is true. Can, can he punch? Dance around. Can he punch the testicles? Because he's at about that level on Novak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we. I think if this. So thanks we for coming on today, together, guys. It should be. It should be no holds barred. No holds barred. <laughs> Brad Stein, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll have to do this again because uh, we, we probably could have talked for another two hours here. But thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, you guys. I, you know, I, I always I'm way too verbose. I know that. <laughs> no, I hope to get just a bit of your optimism one day, <laughs> one day. <laughs> OK, no, Brad, thank you so much. Thanks, we love having you on and hopefully we can see you soon. Yeah, thanks, you guys. We'll see you in New York now. The show might be over, but the conversation isn't. Join us on social media at NoahRubin33, at MikeCTennis, and at Behind the Racket. Expect new episodes every Monday or Tuesday. And don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes. It really helps us expand and reach more listeners as we take you Behind the Racket.